0: Welcome to Security All In. This is Sam Curry. I'm the Chief Security Officer for Cyber Reason and a visiting fellow with the National Security Institute. And uh, Security All In is all about the moment when my guests go all in on security or security went all in on them. My sincere hope is to uncover what makes them tick and share that with you. And sometimes when we think of it, we get a poker motif or a risk motif going. Anyway, I'm I'm glad to be joined today by Keith Barros, who is with Seton Hall and, and a dear friend of mine. And as I was telling you earlier, I've enjoyed every project we've worked on together. And I'm, I'm very grateful, Keith, that you're joining me today on this. So thank you for being here. And thanks for inviting me, Sam. Maybe we could start with how did you find security or how did security find you? Where did that happen in your background? My first job
1: after graduate school, one of the responsibilities that I had, it was for a company that rent parking lots in the Northeast. And uh, one of the, the responsibilities I had was revenue control for parking lots, and and this was in the, uh, the early 90s.
0: Is that a euphemism for cash register, or was it like, Yes. Yeah, okay. yes, yes,
1: yes, revenue control. Revenue control, because you had to not only control, you know people stealing parking time, but you all employees from stealing the cash because there were no credit cards being used at that time. And uh, it was kind of fun, because it was always trying to stay one step ahead of both your customers and your employees from stealing money from you. And if you think about how parking lots are, you know, it's a, most of them are an open lot with a little booth and a guy taking money in the booth. In cash? In cash. Today it's all credit cards, but then it was a cash-only business. So was it, it, kind of where I started really thinking about how do you se- use technology to secure things. And uh, it kind of floated from there
0: how technical did you get at that? Were you building machine learning models? Were you, or was this a, you would learn like a savvy detective on a serial thriller? Had you figured out all the chicks and, and were you spotting them? Was this a high tech endeavor by you or was this a, was this a Mark one eyeball?
1: It started out as, you know, the, the low tech version of things, but as we started to get more technology conscious, we started putting things like in the garages, you know, you have the gates and all that stuff. And we would put uh, loops in the ground, magnetic loops in the ground so that you could sense Mm. that there was a car over it. You could put treadles in where a car would have to go over with two axles. So somebody couldn't lay like a garbage can lid on the loop. So those were the first steps. And then we actually got to the point where we developed a, uh, for the open lots, we developed a a computer system from the chip up. Uh, It was an entirely waterproof touchscreen system. And this is probably like 1994 when touchscreen wasn't really a a really conscious thing at the moment, and uh-huh. uh, you know it was you know, dial-up networked, um, but we you know we started to actually use that type of technology to secure revenue in, in these lots, and uh, it worked pretty well. It was very expensive. Luckily, the company you know, was willing to do a lot of the R and D, but yeah, we built it right from the design of the chip all the way up to the chassis and the entire enclosure.
0: And at that point, was your opponent was it somebody outside trying to break in, or were you worried? Was it still? Hey, you know, customers trying to defeat the system or employees trying to, shall we say, skim off the top?
1: Employees trying to skim off the top. This is, you know, the traditional insider threat of taking cash out of your pocket. These were not really, there was no money being transacted in the system itself mm-hmm. because we still weren't doing credit cards. It was still a cash business. And these were really just the ways for us to, uh, account for a car pulling in and, you know, the uh, attendant taking the keys to them leaving and actually giving money to the system. So we didn't have to worry too much about external. This is in the early 80s when, early 90s rather, when things were still, the internet was still kind of new Mm -hmm. and there wasn't a whole lot of stuff going on other than dial-up modems and things like that. So we weren't too worried about external threats yet.
0: Yeah, the race was on for the faster and faster modem, the 2400, the 48, the 14.4. Exactly. Yeah, I remember those days well. So let's rewind on the life of Keith for a minute and go a bit further back. When did you first encounter technology? What was the early Keith's doing? How far back was that? And what was your first encounter really with, shall we say, information, not even information security, but computer science?
1: Well, my, my first career science was when the uh, the first real home computers came out, which was for me was the Timex Sinclair. Yeah, I was curious. I you know, I'm a gadget guy, so uh, you know, I went out and yeah. bought one. I, I can't even remember how much they were, and I bought one. I plugged it into my TV at home, and
0: I think they were like three or four hundred bucks.
1: I think they were. I mean, it was like basic programming, and I, I you know, programmed the Hello World screen, and I was really ecstatic. And then I got it to
0: play. Nice. Uh, when the saints go marching in and that was, you know, even more exciting. That was advanced. Were you copying the, the basic lines in from a, another program or did you figure out the timing? It was built in from another program. I was you know, still trying to figure out how this, this
1: thing worked. You know, so that, that was my first. And then, uh, I, you know, I was an undergrad and I figured I needed to, you know, type papers and stuff. So I bought a TRS-80. Oh, the trash 80. Yep. The trash 80. And I bought a, a dot matrix printer. And then I got really sophisticated and I bought a floppy drive, you know. <laughs> that that was over the
0: top. That was a, my first computer with, that aside from the ones I had my dad at the university was a TN99-4A. And we didn't have a floppy. It was a cartridge or it was the external tape recorder.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that was a big deal. Yeah. So that's, that's what I, you know, was my starting with this. And then um, I had uh, applied to graduate school here at Seton Hall and I got accepted into the MBA program. And I was looking for a graduate assistantship.
0: What was your, uh, what was your undergrad
1: in? My undergrad was in management. Uh, I was a double major. So it was management science and it was history. Those are my, I figured management science was to make a living and history was for something that I've actually liked. That's awesome. I applied here for the MBA program and I got accepted. I was a marketing major and I applied for graduate assistantship hoping to be like a TA and there were no TA positions available, but they said, Hey, IT department is looking for somebody. And do you know anything about computers? And, and um, uh, I said, and "You're like yes, I have, I have a copy. Sure. Yeah. I I <laughs> sent my resume on a dot matrix printout, and they were like, "You're
0: hired." <laughs> That's awesome. What was the standard for sending resumes in those days? Was it typewritten? Was it was type typewritten. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah, the dot matrix printers those are those were fantastic, with the ribbons on the side. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and they tore you know your desk shook apart you know from all the the pounding it took as it was printing out whatever.
0: Yep. So while you're doing your business degrees, and your passion is history. We're going to put a thumbtack in that because I'm going to want to come back to that. And you're using these machines, and now you're in the IT department at Seton Hall. Have you been there for the duration? Have you been there since? Or, and was it straight into security when you did that, or no? It, so more general IT?
1: When I was a grad assistant, my job was really, I had two jobs. One was to manage the undergrad students that, that worked here, and the second one was to actually monitor the BitNet-Arpanet connection we had on our mainframe. Wow. So I predate the internet by a few years anyway, and then I applied for uh, still was trying to get a teaching assistant job. And the College of Education I had a program where they taught uh, basic computing to non-computing majors, and they asked me, since I you know an MBA degree is sixty credits, so they said you have thirty, you can now teach. Would you like to be an adjunct? And I said sure, and they hired me to be an adjunct. And uh, when I got my MBA, I left here and I went out into the you know to the corporate world. And um, I continued teaching as an adjunct for all the time I was in the corporate world until I came back here 12 and, 12 and a half years ago. Was it purely IT or were you also teaching, were you teaching business or history? No, I was basic computing, database design. It, it varied from
0: whether I was teaching undergraduate or graduate courses. Cool. Let's go back to that thumbtack for a minute. Uh, history. Let's start with what periods in history fascinate you or pull you in. History is a long time. <laughs> Which ones make you go? I got to read that book. I got to see that movie. I got. I want to dive deeper into do some research here.
1: My interest in history is mostly in American military history. Mm-hmm. Uh, I tend to not be as interested when it goes outside of that. You know, our two hundred plus years, and then the, the specific ones are the Civil War and World War Two are the two areas that you know I, I probably do most of my reading in even today, and probably did almost all of my undergraduate work was
0: almost in the Civil War. So the the Civil War, do you still follow it? Do you still read it? Is this a, a passion for you? And do you still get involved in the school around history and the Civil War, and or does it affect how you do security today?
1: Well, I, I still read it mostly today. Most of my reading is more like historical fiction than you know actual you know accounts of of the war because I I think I read so much about the Civil War at one point that. It was just repetitive. It was becoming tiresome, so I started looking for books that were more letters home and and where mm. you could start to get a real personal nature of the people who fought in the war, whether they were officers or enlisted men, uh, just to to get where they were at in it. And uh, so over time, it you know it bogs down. Today, I'm probably, as I said, I'm doing more, a little more reading on this on the World War II, and I'm trying to do the same thing, getting an understanding of the people who were involved, not just the the big names like Eisenhower and so forth, but getting down to the, you know, the soldiers and and officers who were in the platoons and in the trenches actually fighting. I don't know if it really applies to my, how I approach security today, but I look at some of the, the ideas that you, you do in a military perspective, right? Mm -hmm. You know, looking at your defense, your supply lines, your logistics that go into all this stuff. And and it it kind of applies to what we do on a daily basis, right? I I have to look at what our adversaries are, what they're up to, what our real risks are, what can I afford to lose if I have to take a hit, what can I lose at all, you know, do I have vendors who can support me, what happens, you know, if we have to go change our, our model of operation like we are today, and those are all the things that I, I think the, the basic things that you learn through history are applying to what, we, you know, how we deal with with
0: security, you know, here today. You know, it's funny, I, I sometimes paraphrase klaus Fitz when i say that war is an extension of politics by other means and yep. and then i say hey cyber is an, is another extension it, it, it could be seen either as the next stage beyond war as an extension or as a parallel one with a different risk profile except for the breakdown i think in physical boundaries the the principles of getting inside your opponent's command and control loop the yep the, the you know affecting the supply lines even the sharpened how many people are engaged with the enemy and how do you equip them? To be better war fighters all those analogies apply. I think we have a lot of war analogies that happen, but they're usually sloppy There's something to be said for a deep understanding of the the sort of permanent truths whether it's You know civil war or revolutionary war or world war two or even more recent conflicts and with how we conduct cyber conflicts. so that certainly resonates with me. Have you have you read anything particularly inspiring and thought, you know, there's a there's a lesson here, or I'm feeling parallels with cyber recently? I know you still read it, but is there anything that comes to mind as as an author or a book that you said, hey, if you sink yourself into this, you could squint your eyes and, or at least your imagination a bit, and see yourself in a cyber battlefield?
1: Not recently. I mean, there's you know, a lot of the stuff I've been reading lately is again, is in, in kind of in World War II in some of the naval battles and really looking at how the officers on both sides were trying to figure out what was the next move of their adversary and having very little intelligence, good intelligence about what was going on. And I look at that kind of from, from my perspective and looking at it here and saying, you know, I don't know what our adversaries are really up to. We all know what the press talks about mm-hmm. and trying to dig into the information I do have at hand about, you know, our, our traditional ways of, of being attacked and, and, you know, what we're dealing with. And that's really how I'm looking at it and trying to put those pieces together. But there's no one particular book I can say that, you know, boy, this book was really helpful in, in
0: looking at it that way. I agree with you so completely. Uh, with regard to coverage and, and especially attribution, is something that I, I'm leery of. But have you ever thought about writing? Have you thought about maybe picking up the pen and giving it a shot yourself? Is there, if you're reading it, you must in the back of your head, there has to be the thought of a novel at some point or some, something you'd want to write about.
1: I have, and, and I've started several times. And, and,
0: you know, when I started to
1: write the first couple of times, it was trying to take a historical perspective and, you know, writing something about the Civil War or maybe the American West. And uh, I kind of got nervous about it because you have to have, make, have the right language and you have to have the right jargon and you just can't throw in modern you know, talk into to these kind of novels. The dialogue is the hard part. Very hard. So, you know, of course, you know, they always, all the hints for writers are write what you know, write what you know, write what you know. And uh, a few years ago, I started helping out at this very small rural church uh, up in the, the Poconos in Pennsylvania. And I started to, Watch how these people acted and talked and all this stuff. And I started to write a book about all the, uh, let's say, the the gossip and the back (laughs) and things that were going on in this little church. And I got about, I guess, maybe about 30,000 words written. And I said, you know, this needs a better theme. So then I started weaving in cybersecurity into the story. So right now I'm at about 80,000 words. I figure I've about another 10,000 to finish off the book, and then I'm going to see if I can you know, get it edited and published. So that's my Into a Novel. And I've also got a little short story going on right now about a uh, a cybersecurity story that happened to me personally here. I'm calling it the Christmas Party because we had a, a brute force attack on the day of our corporate Christmas party. And I happen to be on campus. Yeah. <laughs> And I called my analyst that was on campus that night. And I said, hey, I need you to do something. He said, you expect me to leave the Christmas party? And and we just get a big, he's he's no longer with us. No, I didn't fire him, but. uh,
0: Yes, but for a very long time.
1: (laughs) Yes. Um, So we had this, but it's it's a running joke amongst my team. Whenever somebody doesn't want to do something or or wants a joke about it, they'll go, but I you have know, the Christmas party. So I've actually written a short story on that. And I just have to finish it off. I have probably about
0: maybe a, a three or four paragraphs to, to complete that. And then I'll have to push that out there. That's awesome. I, I do have a book recommendation you may have read for you, which is the uh, Cryptonomicon by Neil Stevenson. Have you, have you had a chance to read it? I have not read that. It's good because it ties together a whole lot over a long period of time from World War II to modern day. It is a phenomenal if hefty tome that is building on cryptography, and I just I just found it a, a and it, and it covers everything from you know the, the World War II struggle with that you know the, the Allied code breakers and the notion of tactical deception uh, and operatives, and right up to present well present day it was written I think in ninety nine or ninety eight, but I highly recommend it. Cryptonomicon, Neil Stevenson said, so, but but I want to read your stuff, so if you ever want somebody to be a beta reader, count me in on that. I appreciate that. But I have to ask, do you have any other hobbies? I I think I heard somewhere that you're into photography, and and I'm pretty sure you're like bourbon. What would you consider your other hobbies? Well, my two other real hobbies are are
1: photography. Is one I've been doing photography since I was 17, and um, I've always enjoyed it. And you know, it's just it gets it ebbs and flows based on uh, how creative I'm feeling and what the weather's like outside. Cause I, you know, most of my photography is outside. I do like to also shoot miniatures. I, I kind of build dioramas and, and do some miniature oh. shooting, uh, which do is you mean, if, like
0: civil war, civil war dioramas or everyday life or
1: both. So, you know, I've done things where um, I was doing something with, uh, I, I built a mountain um, like a ski slope hmm. and I made it out of brownies with white icing wow. for the snow. And um, sprigs of rosemary as the evergreen trees. <laughs> and I got a little HO scale miniature skiers and I put them on the icing and I, that's one of the miniatures I was doing. So that was one. And another one I did is a, I took a, a, an ear of corn and I removed some of the kernels and I got some miniature uh, masons and they're putting the kernels into the corn as if they were actually building the ear of corn. So it's that kind of little miniature that's stuff. That's amazing. That's so cool. Do you have any collections? Did you put it on the web or anything? No, I mean I've mostly shot them for myself, and my hesitation to put stuff on the web is I've had pictures taken and stolen, and I'm always uh, a little
0: bit uh, a little bit hesitant on that. So that's the photography portion, and then uh,
1: the is, there some, is there is there an
0: element of deception in that? Uh, this is really this, but looks like that kind of thing. No, like- I, it, well,
1: yeah, because if you you know if if you do it right, it looks like it's real people, and it's not. You know that that's kind of you know the the quality I, I'm I'm aiming for. I don't always get there, but I, I mean, that's what I try to get. Is that you know if somebody a casual looker, especially if I blow the picture up, it would almost look like you're you're looking at real people doing something really strange. And uh, you know, but when you look close, you realize,
0: oh, these are little miniature people. So you were about to say something about bourbon, and I I interrupted or spoke over you. How does bourbon play into you? Is it you? You like to take pictures and write about it while having had a few? Or (laughs) where where were you headed with
1: that one? Well, I I was just saying, I I just recently became a certified bourbon steward. Is that like a sommelier, but for bourbon? For bourbon, yeah. Wow. Uh, Yeah, and I'm I'm actually this. Once the travel is safer to do, I'm going to head down to Kentucky and take a, a second. More higher level class where you actually go through, you know, tasting not bourbon but like the flavors that make up the bourbons and the different how they put the
0: alcohol. Is it like a sommelier thing where the master sommelier is like two hundred ever and and they can they can smell and taste it and tell you about exactly that that vintage? Is it like that when you get to the top end?
1: No, it's actually it's it's funny because the master distillers, which are the people who make the bourbon, some of them will tell you that they can't tell the difference between whether it's vanilla or it's caramel or it's leather or it's wood, they can just tell you what they know is a good bourbon, what tastes good to people. So unlike sommeliers where you know where they can tell you every note of, of the flavor, I think bourbon's a little harder because there are so many subtleties that are in there. But it's really trying to understand how bourbon is made, what are the different types of flavors and things that are available so that when I'm talking to someone who says, you know, I don't like bourbon or, well, what's a good bourbon? Mm -hmm. You can kind of talk to them and get their feelings and say, okay, based on what your tastes are and what you like, you should try this or you should try that or put a flight together for them
0: so they can see the differences, the nuances of the different kinds. How much of it do you have to teach them how to drink it? Because when I first, quote, did bourbon, it felt like a painful experience until I had someone sit down and say, here's how you drink it. Here's what you look for. Wait this amount of time, exhale. And then I started to get into it and I'm, I have no expertise, but uh, how much of it is you put a flight together versus, Hey, before you even do that, here's how to, here's how to ingest it. Well, yeah. If somebody's trying to drink it straight, I,
1: I do try to help them understand this is the way to do it so that you can get the, the right flavors out of it. Because if you gulped it down on the first thing you get what a lot of people refer to as the Kentucky hug which is that burn that you get from mm-hmm. the alcohol and if you do it more subtly you can get your taste buds ready and you don't overwhelm them with the alcohol and then you can sip it and taste it and start to, to get it and, and similar to wine right you know take a deep breath sm- smell it in because you, the aromas are part of it put a few droplets of water in it to, to release the to open up the flavors and and the smell of the bourbon. And that's what I try to get people to do. Or if they're somebody who really doesn't, doesn't really understand how flavorful bourbon can be, maybe you start them out with a simple cocktail, like a, like an old fashioned and say, Mm -hmm. try this first and and enjoy the sweetness of it. But at least you can see what, where that's coming from.
0: It's not always about drinking it, you know, neat and and, going that way. So trying to bring this back to security, I, I was originally thinking depth of thought with your analysis and you're sinking yourself into historical periods. And I was thinking visualization and maybe a little deception around photography. But I get a more sensual experience from the bourbon. Is this, a, do any of these find themselves in your security program at Seton Hall? Is it? Is it visualizing outcomes? Is it getting people to understand how to approach security? Do you, do you give them the old fashioned before they before you start producing a flight for the min-risk is, is am I reaching too much here or do those things find their way into your program? No, they do find their way in. So I look at, you
1: know, the um, as a CISO, you know, your role is to secure the environment and manage the staff of, of security people that you have working for. And then also, you know, selling security, if you will, to both the community and to the executives that there's a value of what we provide and here's what the value is so, you know, we're doing and you start to piece these things together so if you look at as part of my my interest in bourbon it's also there's the history of bourbon that goes back to you know pre-george washington and the revolution and stuff in this country Mm -hmm. and then you look at photography and the visualization and that's part of what you know i try to do here is i try to get people to understand that this is what we face, but you can't throw FUD out there, and you can't be out there always saying no to everything. So try to look at a problem, I tell my staff this all the time, when we have an issue we have to deal with, you just can't turn around to sit to people and say, don't do that. Try to visualize from their perspective what it is they're trying to accomplish, and how can we take the tools we have to mitigate the risk that's there. And and you have to look at it at a very broad scale, in a historical scale from the university's perspective, because this institution has been here for 160 years. And sometimes we joke that we're still, we still do things like it's been 160 years ago, <laughs> but you have to look at that, you know, just because we see it as a risk, the business may see it as, Hey, I'm willing to accept it. So now you have to start to think about how do I apply security to this? Or how do I get them to understand why, what they're trying to do Is not maybe the best way to do it but you just can't sit there and go well we're security we said no you know you have to come up with better solutions for that and i think when you start to look at things historically you know how have we done things how can i change the way we do things but make it seem like we're not changing them and that's all i think where a lot of this stuff comes together you know you you get those new the nuances that are in what I see in photography and the nuances I see in the flavors of bourbon kind of tie together in the nuances we see as a security group. And we have you know, some very different constituencies here. I have faculty who, who think they know everything and should be given the rights to do whatever they feel like. We have administrators and managers who are typical employees. And then I have the student population that I have very little control over, but we have to kind of protect all of them because if you don't protect all of them, you haven't done your
0: job right. Yeah, no. My sense from you is a very respectful immersion, not from a distance. It's a, I'm in it with you. You know, I'm you're in the history period in your mind. You're you're in the experience of drinking the bourbon. You're in the diorama you make with brownies and icing. You're in the security function. It's not done from a distance. So I I, I know we're actually getting close to the end of our time. So I have maybe one question for you. One more because I could talk forever on on some of this stuff, or at least listen. So you say you speak to different constituents at the school. I used to, at one point, I, I taught a remedial English program for people that weren't very good at it. And I was very proud that about half of my course wound up becoming English majors. I have a suspicion that you, and that wasn't my primary specialty, but that you go and talk to some new students, whether you do or don't. Uh, if you do, I'd love to hear what you say. But if, if you imagine it in the event that you don't do this very often, you got a one-on-one freshman class of something and you're going to talk cyber, what do you say to them about cyber? And what do you say to the subset of people that say, "Hey, I'm contemplating it. I'd like to go in that direction." What advice do you give to those people?
1: Well, I talk to them about you know what makes them think that they're that cyber is of interest to them. This is for the ones who think they might go into cyber. We have a you know an undergraduate cybersecurity program. We invite about 25 students each year to join that program, and we have a kickoff meeting on a Sunday. Well, it used to be on a Sunday; it'll be on Monday this year. But and I have that conversation with with them about. What makes you think you're, you're getting into cyber? And here's what cyber is really all about. It's not just about hackers and defenders, the red and blue teams. It's about legal. It's about uh, sociology. It's about psychology. And I try to give them that impression that this is a very broad field that has a lot of potential if you're willing to put the effort in. And when I talk to more general students, which we do occasionally, we have these uh, sessions here uh, that are more open, I say the same thing to them. Whether you think it or not or believe it or not, you are involved in cybersecurity every single day because you have to protect your own information. If you don't, you're being very foolish and you're taking a lot of personal risk. And that then expands when you get a job. And I don't care whether you're a teacher or a doctor or whatever it is, you're putting your organization at risk if you don't think about cyber. You don't have to be an expert into it, but you have to understand the very basics of if you're gonna lock the front door to your house, you need to lock your cyber environment. It's that simple. And so that's what I try to get across to them, mm-hmm. getting that that this is an exciting field that has a lot of opportunity for them, especially today, and just because there's it's changing so so dynamically.
0: Well, Keith, as I said, I always have fun when I interact with you, and, and I'm willing to bet that the students say the same thing and they feel the passion that I think you bring to the things we've discussed today and and to cyber and to Seton Hall. So, Thank you for being on the show. I really appreciate it. And uh, I can't wait till we interact again. Right. Thanks, Sam. I appreciate it.